Welcome to Conflict Managed. I'm your host, Mary Brown. Today on Conflict Managed, we are joined by Hannah Grace Gardner. Hannah Grace is from Martin, Tennessee, and just graduated from Harding University with a master's degree in business administration and an undergraduate degree in international business. While at Harding, Hannah Grace worked at the Waldron Center for Entrepreneurship and Family Business. She was active in many campus social clubs, a running club, and her local church. This fall, she's starting law school at the University of Tennessee at Knoxville. She's not sure what kind of law she wants to pursue, but she's interested in healthcare, economics, and intellectual property. Hannah Grace's hobbies include reading, running, traveling, and taking care of her little indoor garden. Good morning, Hannah Grace, and welcome to Conflict Managed. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. I have been thinking about interviewing you for a while because I've known you for quite some time, and I am so interested into what 20-somethings think about the world of work and their experiences. So let's go ahead and begin. Can you tell us about the first job you've ever had? Okay, yes. So technically, the first job I ever had was not really a job. I was a referee for rec league soccer when I was 15. I might have been 14, 15, 16 for several seasons. And that's what I call my first ever job. But it was not like your typical, you know, nine to five type job. That was that came later my senior year of high school. But that was my first job. Did you enjoy it? Yes, I loved it. I played soccer for years and years. So it was actually really, really fun. Had to get up really early, but it was it was a good time. Yeah. You know, there's the stereotypical dealing with the parents on the sideline, not so much the kids. Did you have any any of those experiences? That's actually why I would consider it a job because it wasn't all fun. (laughs) And I was just a 15 year old kid on the sidelines making calls about eight year olds and parents were acting like that was like actually just the most important job that you could ever have. So I did have to deal with some parents and you just kind of have to be like okay whistle is blown I'm the boss you're not (laughs) that's the call you know that is so interesting because for some people youth league sports are high stakes and a lot of times especially you know summer soccer or fall soccer you know on the weekends is reffed by teenagers yeah yeah I actually did learn a lot about interacting with people from that job so what what is do you consider you said your first real job if that wasn't it? Yes. So I had an internship the summer after my senior year of high school, the Christmas break of my freshman year of college and then the summer after my freshman year. And I worked at a small law firm in my hometown and I was I was an intern but I was basically the receptionist sometimes. I would just do like little odd jobs around answer the phone, go run errands, do go to the courthouse, things like that. So that was my first real job. And what did you enjoy about that job? Well, at that point in time, I was, I was interested in going to law school, but I wasn't sure that I wanted to go. So probably the best part about that job was just getting experience in a field that I was really interested in. And it was a big reason that I did decide to end up going to law school. And so it was really cool because, you know, I got to go to the courthouse a couple of times and see how things ran there. And I got to read a, a lot of my job was like scanning and organizing documents on the computer and physical documents. 
And so I got to read a lot and just kind of gain a little bit of confidence of like, okay, I have no background, but I can understand what this means. And, you know, I get this, I get this talking with people, interacting with the types of clients that would come into this office. I think the experience in something that I was interested in was the best part of that job. I think it's so interesting that you said part of going, because you're going to law school here in a few weeks. I am. And a part of deciding to pursue law was this experience that you had. And so I think a lot of times people think, oh, I'm interested in this profession, but they never get any real world experience. Like, Mm -hmm. what is it actually like? And so what a valuable experience. It was. It was awesome. Did you have any other jobs while you were in college? Yes. So that was... That was the first couple years. I was a student worker in the business building. I was a business major in undergrad. And so I worked in the business building in the entrepreneurship and family business center. And then summer after my sophomore year, I was a health plans intern at a health insurance company a couple hours away from home. And that I, I had that job for a whole summer. And then this past summer, I was a camp counselor. For a couple of weeks just to do something a little bit less serious, maybe a little bit more uplifting and fun before going off to law school. That sounds delightful. I spent two summers in between college years uh, at a camp and it was, they were, it was so much fun. It's a lot of work, uh, quite a it's lot so of much work. work. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like not constant. relaxing at all. <laughs> no, it's not quite a, as ideal. Like, I mean, where I was at the, it was uh, in the Sequoias in, in California, it was beautiful, but you were working oh. all the time. Yes, you are. But it's so rewarding. It was so much fun. That was probably one of my best work experiences ever. What was so good about it? I think the directors. So the structure of the camp was obviously all the camp counselors. And then there were two directors who lived at the camp with us and who oversaw everything. And they were just so, well, let me just say, it was kind of a difficult job, just some of the subject matter and, um, A lot of the kids that you're dealing with have, you know, trauma and just not ideal home lives. And so not only is that like a personal thing that you just like feel for the kids that you're with, but it also causes a lot of issues at the camp sometimes with like behavior problems and, you know, the campers interacting with each other. And so having the directors that I had was like, instrumental in making everything run smoothly. They were incredible. They just handled everything so well that that just kind of trickled down into how the counselors would interact with the kids. And they are like the reason that everything went as well as it did. They were great. That's wonderful. There are a lot of issues at a camp or or those sorts of environments. And if you don't have excellent leadership, it seems mm-hmm. like it would be impossible for it to work. I would agree. Yeah. So what kind of um, leadership qualities, what are the sorts of things they did in the concrete things they did that you saw as contributing to such a, a good environment given the difficulties? Yeah. So um, one of the things that I think of is we had a daily meeting with all of the counselors and the directors every single day. And it was like, I want to say like 30 minutes long, maybe 45 And when they first told us that we were going to have a meeting every single day, my first reaction was like, oh my goodness, that's, that's a lot, you know, are we really going to need a meeting every single day? And I'm sure in some work environments, that is a lot, obviously, but when you're in such an involved 
type of job where something important is happening every single day, um, having them there and like having access to them every single day was really, really important. And I see why they did that. Um, we were talking about something important in every single meeting. And so I think that was a really good idea for them just in terms of like controlling, I guess, just making themselves available if there were any issues that we knew that we, that we were going to be able to talk to them every single day about it. And it was also good because it helped because it was all the counselors and the two directors. So all the counselors would get to talk to each other if there was something that, you know, we needed to talk to each other about, or it was just, that was a really smart idea. And another thing that I think kind of goes along with that is they were really great at controlling the information flow. So another thing about this camp is that, um, you know, not everybody needs to know everything about every single camper because you're dealing with really sensitive information sometimes. And there are some things that only one counselor needs to know or that only two counselors need to know. And so it's a really delicate line to walk because you don't, you, you never want to gossip about the kids or about other counselors or other staff or anything, but information sharing is really, really important. And so I think they did such a good job about making themselves available and encouraging you to come and talk to them while also never letting you gossip. So that was, like I said, that's so delicate, but they did it so well. That sounds absolutely amazing. I, you're so right that when I encounter an organization where there's lots of gossiping, it is, there's a variety of contributing factors, but one is, as you said, a lack of information flow. People don't know. So they make up their own narratives. Mm -hmm. And uh, you've got a leadership that doesn't care, right? If yeah. you've got leaders that care, that say, we're not doing that here, then they set the tone, right? right? And with them being so involved, they know what's going on. So they know the counselors, mm -hmm. they know the kids, and they're obviously intentionally setting the culture yeah. because the culture is, go is going to happen. And you can either be a part of that and steer it or sort of let it go where it may go. Yeah. Yeah, especially in a situation like that where your counselors are ages 17 to 22. That's a very, <laughs> that's a difficult to control age group. So the right. fact that they were able to do that was very impressive to me. Right. I mean, because not only do you have um, these children, but then you have, even if the counselors were 40 to 60 year olds, there's going to be drama that in, in, yeah. um, in choose when you, when you're living in tight quarters and with kids 24 seven. And so if you aren't investing in the people that are doing the work, then you're just asking for, for chaos. Right. And I really like what you said about the information flow being appropriate. I know mm -hmm. many times I talk to organizations where they want to respect people's privacy, but so much so that nobody knows anything. The people who mm -hmm. should know are not made aware. Of course, then you have the opposite where everybody knows everything. Mm -hmm. But I think that if your leaders, the, of the, these camp directors who were so concerned with treating the, the children with the dignity and respect that they deserve, that these kids' stories are their stories and not to be played with and not to be talked mm -hmm. about, but only to be talked about when it, as you said, it is needed for the children's own good. 
I think that also has probably sent a message to you and your fellow counselors, like that the directors weren't going to be talking bad about you and they weren't going to be giving mm-hmm. your personal information around if they treat the children that way. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. And um, another thing that we would do at the end of the summer is they would have exit interviews where they would ask you for your feedback um, about the whole summer. And the fact that, as you said, they had already set this culture, um, you would feel comfortable to tell them to give them your positive or your negative feedback, you know, because you feel like it, it's not a gossip session. You know, you know that they're going to use your information in the most responsible way possible. They definitely did a good job of making themselves trustworthy. And um, because they made themselves trustworthy and available, I felt comfortable to tell them even feedback that I wouldn't necessarily have told if they hadn't indicated to me that they were trustworthy with that information. You're describing what a lot of people are talking about right now in business circles as psychological safety, right? If Mm -hmm. we have psychological safeties in our organizations, then people will speak up and tell us the things we need to know, which is the difficult stuff. But if you don't think, as you said, your information is going to be used responsibly or there could Mm -hmm. be retribution or whatever, we just won't do it. We won't tell people what they act, the bosses, what they actually need to know. Right. And then things will never get better. (laughs) Right. Things won't get better. And then a lot of times, you know, the people in charge are like, well, what, what is happening? Why is this happening? I've asked for feedback. But, mm-hmm. you know, if you get, I worked at a place where we get a, a yearly survey and um, I never really saw any results. And then on one particular survey, I saw that some of the information was found out, like who said what. And after that day, I don't know if I've ever, I mean, and that was however many years ago, five plus years ago, I haven't filled out filled out an anonymous survey since. Because wow. I I don't I don't trust them, and I think yeah. if you haven't spent that kind of time making the culture where this is just an extra add-on, I've already had an opportunity to talk to you about real things, and I've already seen, as you said, your response and the trust. Then this is just another layer, and it seems reasonable. Mm-hmm. But if you had never, if you had hardly ever met with them and you were sort of left your own devices to deal with these kids that were in crisis, <laughs> uh, the likelihood that they would actually get honest feedback from you was greatly diminished. For sure. So this daily meeting, I can just imagine uh, some listeners groaning inside thinking, oh my gosh, yes. our <laughs> our Monday meeting once a week or our Friday meeting wrap up is too much. And mm-hmm. I think, I mean, as you already uh, explained, it's all about where you're where you're at, right? You know, doctors do For rounds, sure. you know, like they have to do rounds and that's every shift, right? I mean, people need to know what's going on in the patient's care. And if you say, oh, we'll do rounds once a month or once a week, mm-hmm. we'd like, oh my gosh, absolutely not. So it's, yeah. it's finding that right balance given whatever kind of work you're doing. Yeah, well, you just think about how many hours as a camp counselor you're putting in, you know, a daily meeting is... I mean, it is daily because you're actually working 24 hours a day. You know, it's not like your typical nine to five job where a daily meeting on a nine to five job is not the same thing as a daily meeting as a camp counselor. You're just dealing with so much and you need you need help and you need to talk about it and you need to. You just you just need it every day. 
it yeah. was a really great addition to the day. Well, that's wonderful. What a great experience to have right before you go off to law school. So what made you interested in wanting to go to law school? And, and what do you know what kind of law you want to practice? Well, I'll answer the second question first of what kind of law I want to practice. And that's actually, I'm going to circle back to when we were talking about my first internship. And that internship was a really great experience, but it did help me decide what kind of law I do not want to practice, which is just as valuable, I think, as figuring out what you do want to practice. So um, I'm thinking at this point, I'm really interested in healthcare. This could completely change once I get to I feel like I don't have just a ton of experience studying the different types of law. So um, this could totally change once I get there. But um, my interest right now is healthcare law. And that's what I've worked in for, and that was two summers ago. And, and I really enjoyed it. To the first question of what made me want to, I think you know that I got interested in law when I started Ethics Bowl in high school, which you were my Ethics Bowl coach. And that's kind of what really made me realize what some of my strengths are, you know, public speaking, reading comprehension, things like this that are really important as you go into law. And I just kind of started analyzing the things that I'm good at, the things that I'm not so good at. And it just kind of seemed like law was going to be something where I could use all of my strengths in my career, which is really important. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm glad that I had you in Ethics Bowl. That was a lot of fun years for me, yeah, having, awesome. being able to coach you and talk through all those fun issues together. Yeah. So when you think about the different places that you've worked, what environment, when it comes to communication and maybe even just what's expected of you, what resonates with you as the best environment and why was it good for you? Do you mean out of all of the places that I have worked, which one yeah. would be the best? Well, if I'm thinking about all of the characteristics just on paper, I would definitely say my work environment while I was camp counseling was really, really great. Although it's not the most ideal for me if we're just looking at the kind of career that I'm going to go into, you know? <laughs> so while that was great, I would say it's it's probably not going to be replicated in any other workplace that I'm ever in. Um, so I would say the internship that I had after my sophomore year where I worked in um, the office environment at the health insurance company was also a really awesome experience as an intern there. That one, I think it was actually a pretty rare intern experience where I was actually doing a lot of what I felt like was important work. I wasn't just doing, you know, the grunt work or the low stakes or well, I'm sure it was all low stakes because... I was still just an intern, but it didn't feel low stakes to me. It felt like I was actually doing something and like I was actually learning a lot. And so I think what really made that place really special is that they were really great at making you feel like you were a part of the team. They definitely, they were just giving the interns a lot of attention, which I think is kind of rare. And I think that if you're translating that into what I would want in the future, want to feel, to be made to feel like I'm part of the team good communication, good, when I say good communication, I mean, I was able, I had a really great intern supervisor and, you know, spoke with him every single day, multiple times a day. The office was very open. I was introduced to every single person basically on the floor, like the very first day. Um, so there was a lot of, I guess, just clarity may not be the right word, but maybe in terms of, 
I felt like I could talk to everybody. That workplace was just really, really healthy. And I enjoyed it a lot. And I hope that that's the kind of place that I get to work in in the future. That sounds really ideal. I mean, we go to work and we want to do good work. We don't want to feel like we are simply getting coffee or simply making copies, even though there's a place for all of this, right? The world of work, we do a variety of things, but Mm -hmm. actually contributing. And as you said before, being able to use your skills for whatever your your purpose is, you know, what it is that you want to try to accomplish. What, what did they do that made you feel like you were part of the team? Well, my first thought is, I think they were great at explaining why this job needed to be done or what exactly, you know, if I'm like proofreading a document, they would explain to me what this document is and like what it does for the company. So you get a little bit of clarity on like, okay, this is not grunt work. This is like, this is something that has to be done. Someone would do this and, you know, they chose me to do it, that kind of thing. So being made to like understand why this job is being done or one of the things that I did was I worked on like building this database type thing, like the structure of it. And it was explained to me multiple times, like how this database was going to be used and why it was important and what problem this is solving. So again, I think the clarity on what it is that I'm doing and why it matters was really, really important. And I appreciated that a lot. It seems so simple. You yeah. know, Grace, you would think that, well, every place is like this, right? They explain why you need to do something, how you need to do something, the importance of it. And interestingly enough, that's, it is rare. Mm-hmm. People aren't given that kind of information that is so very helpful for us to be able to do our best work. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really hard to do something if you have no idea why you're doing it. You know, if you are just, you know, like in the show severance, if you are just putting numbers, finding the bad numbers um, on the screen and you don't know why, or, you know, like, so you're doing this database and if nobody has given you, telling you, told you exactly how to do it and the importance of it, Mm -hmm. it just feels different. And so much about work and doing our best work is how we feel about it. Are we Mm -hmm. valued? is are we contributing do they care about us yeah especially when you're thinking about motivation i mean how are you going to be motivated to do a job that you don't feel like it matters because the people around you don't feel like it matters so what so why does it matter why would i be motivated i think that was a big thing for this workplace was everyone was indicating to me that this actually mattered that you were doing real work and you know there were deadlines you know like i would have my uh, intern supervisor would be saying like, I need this by Friday. I need this by whenever. And even that sort of thing can indicate to you that this is important work because, you know, I need it. I need it to go to this meeting. I need it for whatever reason. Absolutely. The motivation and again, the importance of it. Oh, if I don't have this done and done right, when this person goes to the meeting, then that will be bad for them, the client, the organization. And that's, We want to feel, again, that's a part of feeling like we're actually doing things that matter. Yeah. So have you had the experience either in a a paying job or a non-paying job, like volunteer, where 
the communication was lacking. People weren't quite sure what they were supposed to be doing. And there was a lack of motivation. I can't think of anything specific right off the top of my head, but what you're describing sounds like a lot of group projects that I've worked on in <laughs> school sometimes right. where um, there's just sometimes I would have some professors and this is, again, I'm not in the workforce yet. So I, I haven't, I have yet to decide if this is actually helpful or not, but um, who would sometimes intentionally <laughs> give you not enough information in order to simulate the actual workforce, you know, just to be like, well, your bosses may not give you everything. So why don't you just take this and run with it? And it's like, okay, well, thanks. I really hope that's not what <laughs> real life is like, but you know, it might turn out that that's helpful to me in the future. But I did have a couple projects like that. Oh, that is so interesting. From my experience, that is true. Uh, you know, it's, this needs to be done go ahead and do it. And then you're left yeah. guessing, well, what does, what, what does done look like? What does done excellently look like? What do they really want? And unfortunately, yeah. a lot of time in business is spent trying to mind read your boss. Like, what what mm -hmm. do they want? Why is this important? What is the deadline? What are the stakes? What's been done before? What do they not want? And so um, we do want clarity, clarity from the people mm -hmm. that we work around for everybody's benefit. For sure. So uh, there's a lot of talk about generational differences. And when I go and talk to a group, that's one of the first things people talk about. Oh, oh the young people or, oh, the people who've been around forever. You know, when it comes, a lot of times people focus on work ethic or communication styles like, oh, young people won't return a phone call or, oh, the older generation is set in their ways and they don't know what's going on or mm -hmm. whatever it might be. Have you encountered any generational differences or among your peers when, when you think about the world of work versus maybe older generations? Well, because my first two real jobs were internships, I was mostly working with other people my age and was only working. The only, I guess I should say, the only experiences that I had with other generations, they were my bosses and they were not my peers. And so that would kind of take that out. But I guess I can I can see where um, in the student professor relationship where I could see that for sure. You definitely hear comments sometimes from professors that are not super favorable to the younger generations, which is, I think, a little bit unfortunate sometimes because it's not very encouraging. And it's also sometimes really biased and just generally untrue. I think there are obviously a lot of differences, but I think in those differences, there are strengths and weaknesses for sure. But I can't think of any specific times where I've been, where it's just really been made clear to me, the generational differences. I mean, I've certainly been on a job where I've been able to work a computer better than my bosses, but that's, you know, been kind of a strength for me in some ways <laughs> that I was the one to call to set this up or that up or build the database. So, you know, I like that you said that bias. And I think that's what uh, largely what it is. It's this kind of strange generation war. I'm better than this decade or this decade mm -hmm. is better than that decade. And I, I just think it is, as you said, it's discouraging. It's unnecessary mm -hmm. and it pits people against each other. So, 
uh, maybe somebody in their 20s goes into a work environment and they see somebody in their 40s, 50s and 60s and like, oh, well, that person's going to be a curmudgeon or someone in the older generation is going to look and say, oh, that 20 year old lacks a work ethic. They don't want to work. They don't want to show up and do a good job. And uh, what a waste. Why, Why even think in those sorts of categories instead of, wow, what can I learn from somebody in their 20s? Because the population we serve in most organizations is all populations, right? Mm -hmm. And then um, someone who's just starting in the workforce, oh, what can I learn from people who've been doing this for 20, 30, 40 years? Instead of saying, my way is better, could just really be different. And as you said, there are strengths and weaknesses. For sure. And this is also, I think it's also worth thinking about how this is the most diverse workplace ever. And not just talking about age groups too, but the entire population, if we're talking about the American workplace, the entire American population is represented in the workplace pretty much at this point, um, which just adds a whole other layer of confusion. And I don't know, it's just, it's just very unfortunate that some of these biases do exist in the workplace, but it's only going to get it's something that we're just going to have to adapt to in the workplace because it's never going to return to the way that it was, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And it's only going to become more diverse in the workplace. So I a hundred percent agree. And I think that's really encouraging because I believe that the, the more kinds of people that you have, and if you can create that sense of belonging, like you had this summer at the camp, then you get to hear from all different kinds of voices and personalities mm-hmm. backgrounds which makes whatever you're doing better, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, really innovation and best practices comes from creativity. And mm-hmm. the best product that you put forward has everybody's ideas in it, you know? Yeah. Because we all have different experiences. So the more that we can really capitalize on the diversity in our workforce, the better we're going to be. Mm-hmm. But we also have to recognize that people in general don't like change. And a lot of times um, what we don't know can feel unsettling or mm-hmm. fearful. And so when someone doesn't look like us, for whatever that means, you know, for the region we're from, you know, whatever our background is, sometimes we, un- I think, unnecessarily view them with suspicion. Mm-hmm. But as you said, I think we got to get over that because there's no going back. Thank goodness there is going forward, which Mm -hmm. I think is just such an opportunity. Yeah, for sure. Especially practicing law. I mean, if you end up doing healthcare law, any kind of law, you end up seeing people, all kinds of people, and a lot of times not on their best day. Right, for sure. So when you think about what needs to happen for healthy work environment. So I suppose I talked to you in five years. So you're two years out of law school and uh, you're working for a firm, either big law or some kind of boutique firm. What do you hope to encounter where you work that will encourage you to thrive and be better every day? Well, I think I've spent a lot of time talking about some of the things that I have really enjoyed in the workplaces that I've worked at, you know, good communication, clarity, being made to feel like my work is important, all of these things. Something that 
I also have thought a lot about in the last, I guess maybe, I guess it would be two years probably, is I think that management is going to have to deal a lot with ensuring the health of the people that are working in their companies, the mental health and the physical health also, because these, I mean, you just think about the COVID pandemic and the mental health crisis that's coming from that. And, you know, the social dilemma, social media and things like this, especially with my generation going into the workforce, I think that these things are definitely going to have to be dealt with. And now whether or not how much of that is the responsibility of the company to deal with, we can, that's up for debate, I guess, but whether or not it's the company's responsibility, it's probably going to become the company's problem dealing with people. And especially if we're talking about conflict management, you know, stress causes conflict and how you handle stress is a representation of your relative mental health. So I think that's something that companies are going to have to be aware of in the next five, 10, 15 years. And then obviously physical health as well. That's something that I would be really interested to see where, where companies are with that in the future. That is really interesting. And I like this distinction between responsibility versus problem. You know, Mm -hmm. like, is it really going, is it really organization's responsibility to be concerned with the mental health, mental and physical health of their workers? And let's Mm -hmm. suppose we say, no, you know, these are grown adults. They should be taking care of themselves. If we end up saying that it's to every organization's detriment. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, so you're going to have people who weren't being able to show up for whatever reason in the best mental and physical state of mind that they could be to for them to be their best selves and then to contribute in an excellent way to the organization. So I think that's pretty interesting. If you don't pay attention to the mental and physical well-being of your workers, Mm -hmm. you are hurting yourself. Yeah, especially if your company is contributing more negatively to because if if it comes out that if you decide that the only thing your company can do or you as a manager can do is to be just be positively uh, just or I guess to not be negatively impacting your employees or your team's mental health. And if that's all you can do, then I think that's enough. But if you if your company is actively negatively impacting the emotional, mental, or even physical health of your employees, obviously not only is your team going to suffer, but your entire company is going to suffer because you just think about productivity and efficiency from that perspective. And I think it becomes clear how healthier and happier employees are just going to contribute more and they're going to contribute better to a company. I 100% agree. And that's sort of like my what I try to champion because it's so clear that treating people well is not only the right thing to do, but it's financially sound to do mm-hmm. for, for you. Why do you think that doesn't happen? Why do you think there are so many toxic work environments and bad bosses and employees that are allowed to run amok? Mm. Well, unfortunately, I think it's probably a cycle. You know, first of all, it's easier to not be, I don't want to use the word policing, but to be actively like championing, I guess good treatment in the workplace. Um, It's so much easier to just not be concerned with that at all. And then things get bad and then they continue to get bad. And it's just nothing is breaking the cycle because it's just so much harder to break the cycle than it is to enable the cycle. I think it's because it doesn't take any work 
to create a bad workplace, but it takes a lot of work to create a good workplace. So <laughs> that's probably it. That's a perfect answer. I want to put all of that on a t-shirt and wear it around. That was, that was beautifully said. <laughs> well, Hannah Grace, thank you so much for being on Conflict Managed. I so much enjoyed chatting with you today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was awesome. Well, I appreciate your insights and I look forward to interviewing you in five years and see how you're doing. (laughs) Yes, me too. I'll be taking notes for you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, take care. Hannah Grace, thank you so much for being on Conflict Managed. An absolute joy to talk with you. And I'm so excited to see all that you do through law school and beyond. My new book, How to Be Unprofessional at Work, Tips to Ensure Failure is out And available for purchase on Amazon, please pick up a copy and let me know what you think and share it with a friend. How to Be Unprofessional at Work looks at how we ought not behave at work to start the conversation both internally and with the people around us about what do we want at this organization? What does it mean to be professional here? Conflict Managed is produced by Third Party Workplace Conflict Restoration Services and hosted by me, Mary Brown. You can find us online at 3pconflictrestoration.com. Our music is courtesy of Dove Pilot. And remember, conflict is normal and to be expected. Let's deal with it. Until next time, take care. <laughs>